Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport, a podcast on capitalist sport, labor, and harm in sporting culture with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. If you're enjoying the show, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details on how to support the show via Patreon. With that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport. Dr. Letitia Brown is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and an affiliate of the Africana Studies and Women's and Gender Studies programs at Virginia Tech. Her research focuses on representations of black female athletes in the media, as well as the social relationships that influence healthy eating, overeating, and food choices. Her brilliant work can be found in the Shadow League and in the peer-reviewed journals Social Forces, Ethnic Studies Review, South African Review of Sociology, and the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. Dr. Brown is also an editorial board member of the Sociology of Sport Journal. Letitia, we are super grateful to you for spending some time with us this afternoon. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, as you sort of know, if you've ever listened or tuned into any of our episodes, we love to begin with conversations um, about kind of how our guests are doing during the lockdowns and during the quarantine and all that stuff. But I think, I think perhaps it is time we start asking our guests how they're doing as we come out of this pandemic (laughs) and out of the lockdowns to be a little bit more optimistic. So, Letitia, how are you doing in Black Blackbird Blacksburg, Virginia? Um, I'm actually doing pretty well. We've been having some really nice weather, which is always always fabulous. So, been sitting outside to read. I'm getting really excited about uh, spring, so I can bring my plants back outside so they can enjoy more sunlight. <laughs> That's kind of been my quarantine hobby is taking care of my plants. That's better than me. I I killed the one plant that we had when we went into quarantine. So you're like way, way better than me. Impressive. (laughs) This is the first time I've managed to keep plants alive. So I'm really thrilled. I think it's (laughs) because I gave them names. (laughs) Humanize them a little bit and then you have to keep them alive. You do. (laughs) Excellent. So we really want to get right into it because we just have so, so much to talk to you in this episode because your expertise is so incredibly wide ranging. Um, So your research lies at the intersection of sociological analyses of race and ethnicity, gender, sociology of sport, food studies, and media representations of Black female athletes. Now, we were wondering if you could sort of walk us through or sort of talk about um, how you tie all of these threads of your research together. Um, For example, another way to think about it would be, you know, for those of us who haven't read your work, how do you describe the general project of your research? Mm, That is a great question. When I think about my research in general, I often say that I am a Black feminist scholar who studies predominantly sports, food, and Black girlhoods. Most of my research as an assistant professor, has 
drawn from my experiences as a graduate student and into the future that I see for my work, I've kind of kept sports and food studies separate. But I see as I move along in my career trajectory ways that I'm going to be able to mold them together. But currently, I'm working on a book project that focuses specifically on critical issues in sports around Black sports women. So things like the politics of Black hair and fashion and athlete activism. And I'm really digging deep into this project. Um, in terms of my work on food studies, we're creating a new food studies program here at Virginia Tech, building a minor and having monthly events. I'm designing a course with a group of other fantastic scholars, um, really excited about being able to kind of do the work that excites me. That sounds wonderful. I'm super excited for that book. It sounds like perfect for a variety of <laughs> courses. Um, and, and it sounds like there's wonderful things happening at Virginia Tech. Yeah. Um, you. So, so that's, that's awesome. So for our listeners, I, um, Letitia, one of your pieces is actually on my um, sociology of sport. Uh, syllabus. It has been for a couple years. It's a wonderful piece. And I want to talk about that one specifically. Um, there's a lot of things we're going to get to, but I, I'd like to begin with discussing your 2015 piece, Sporting Space Invaders. Um, in that wonderful piece, oh, um, I was particularly struck um, by sort of how you embarked on these thorough case studies of coverage of South African runners, Castor Semenya and Os Oscar Pistorius, to illustrate the ways in which certain bodies become considered, and I'm quoting here, bodies out of place, or as you put it, sporting space invaders. Could you walk our listeners through that piece and the sort of key arguments that you make? Um, in particular, I'd, I'd personally love to hear more from the expert on how these sporting space invaders um, or how sporting space invaders mark tensions between, um, let's call it traditional sport and the sort of changing face of so-called modern sport. What can we learn from these case studies about how space is opened or not opened for disturbances and disruptions of status quo understandings of sport and society? And I know that's a big question. <laughs> so basically, I just really like to get your take as the expert, as the author on the genesis of that piece and its, its big contributions. Wow, I mean, thank you so much. This piece was the first piece that I published out of work from my master's thesis, Sex, Drugs, and Barbie, um, Gender Verification, Drug Testing, and the Commodification of Black Female Athletes. I wrote that, my dissertation, my master's thesis in 2012. And for many years, I was kind of wrestling with where I wanted to take it and where I could see the project moving, kind of shifting with what was going on contemporarily. And so it focuses, of course, as you said, on Castro Semenya and Oscar Pistorius. And I fell in love with Castro Semenya as an athlete, as a human, when I started um, looking at her through the lens of the media and all of the backlash that she was receiving in terms of her gender identity and issues of testosterone. And so you were talking about how 
sports in terms of like traditional versus this changing space, uh, face of modern sport. So from where I was sitting, when I was looking at all of these things and the ways that she was being talked about and discussed, I was really struck by how it was so closely tied to the idea of controlling images. Um, Patricia Hill Collins talks about these race, class, gendered stereotypes of Black women in particular that have existed since the era of plantation slavery and how Black women are read as being not women at all, particularly when they're athletes. And um, Dr. Ben Carrington's fantastic book, Race, Sports, and Politics, articulates this point very clearly in saying that with the rise of Jack Johnson as the Black heavyweight champion of the world, the idea of masculinity and athleticism shifted, right? Because until then, it had been the purview of white men. But when this Black man came and kind of took what was a title and representative of like the pinnacle of masculinity, the frame had to change. So Black athletes are read as athletic and aggressive as opposed to intelligent and articulate, but that's a whole different conversation. And this masculinization of Black male athletes superimposes itself on Black women athletes as well, because Black women, in order for their bodies to be commodified throughout plantation slavery couldn't be read as female or woman. And so these ideas and these narratives continue. And it's just, it's this narrow understanding of gender and its conflation with sex and the way that we often use those words interchangeably, even though they're not interchangeable. And even though we think about them in these binary ways, neither sex nor gender are binary constructs. So I just found that really kind of incredible in thinking about representations of Black women athletes. And so I was drawn to the story of Castor Semenya. And then around the time that I was writing my master's thesis, there was the Olympic Games and all of the... Uh, media attention on Oscar Pistorius as an athlete who people were like, well, now he has an unfair advantage. And so when I think about conversations around gender and sex among women athletes in general, a lot of the fear comes from one, that they are not women at all because we had gender verification that only verifies women athletes. Like that's where the emphasis lies is that we have to make sure that they're quote unquote real women, whatever that means. And that's based on this idea of male superiority and advantage, right? And so here we have this black woman athlete, and then we have this white male athlete who has his own kind of narratives around advantage, disadvantage, ability, disability because of the prosthesis. And so two very different ways in which athletes can become framed as invading these spaces that we see as existing in one particular way. So for Pistorius, he is a space invader. 
at this time and in this piece insofar as we're thinking about people as becoming cyborgs. And so that means that he has an unfair advantage. Semenya is a space invader because she is a Black woman who's winning all of these races and she can't possibly be that fast unless there's an underlying reason because she's obviously, she has to be a man or else how could she be so fast? And you had not only like fellow competitors, but announcers and the governing boards, like just spewing all of this like colonial discourse. And it was just, oh, it was icky. It was icky. And so I wanted to write something. And I think it was like, 2013, 2014, the South African Review had a special call for paper on sports. And I was like, here we go. (laughs) I think I can write something that would fit perfectly here. And I really just, I am grateful for the opportunity that they gave me to work on my piece and to have it published in 2015 was like one of the highlights of my graduate career. (laughs) It's, a, it's like a really reflexive take, like something that you sort of just felt bad about or felt icky, as you put it. It, it turned into a, a, a brilliant piece that has contributed to, to the field. So one thing that I'm wondering is since it's been, I mean, Kester Simony continues to unfortunately be in the news and continues to be discriminated against. Yes. Uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't, it seems like a never ending story for her. Um, But I'm also sort of wondering how are we seeing, it seems like this exact same debate is like mirrored or or is the same. And and, and I don't know to what extent it's changed or not, but when we're talking about the issue of like trans inclusion and trans athletes, it seems to be this similar thing in terms of people trying to definitively decide like who is a female athlete, who is a male athlete, who is allowed to belong, who is maybe an invader to kind of use some of your language. And so I'm just sort of wondering, you know, how do you see that debate playing out right now? And sort of what role does race play in it, if any? Thank you for that question. This is actually um, one of the chapters that I'm working on in my book deals with this question of what makes a woman. And so kind of thinking Mm -hmm. about the work that I've done on Castro Semenya and the work of other feminist scholars that have studied issues like trans athletes and intersex athletes and thinking about the challenges that they bring up in women's sports, right? Because there's so much anxiety around women's sports and that we have to have a concrete definition of what it means to be a woman, even though for the most part, we're all willing to acknowledge that womanhood, gender, even sex is a social construct. And they exist on a spectrum. Like we want to believe that everything is binary, black, white, male, female, but that's just not, that's just not reality. And centuries before us, like plenty of civilizations acknowledge three or or more genders, right? So it's not like it's new. It's not new. It seems new. And it's kind of new in a colonized Western context, but many Native societies believed in two-spirit people. And so it's just kind of, ugh, it's... It's fascinating to say the least. And so there are, of course, like there's a lot of tension in thinking about 
advantage and disadvantage. And this is where it comes down to again, right? We're saying that Castor Semenya's body that naturally produces too much testosterone is at an advantage over other women whose bodies don't. But we don't talk about Michael Phelps and his mm-hmm. body structure as being an unfair advantage, right? Like that's yeah. just his body. So mm-hmm. you have to wonder like, what is it about A, women's sports and B, race that kind of makes these hangups so ingrained and so deeply entrenched that people just want to hold on to them so tightly that they're missing the ways that sports can be a transformative space, right? And I definitely think that race plays a role in these narratives about who is a woman and who should be able to compete because there's already this understanding that like, you know, we come from this legacy of quote unquote black athletic superiority because of genetics and because of slavery and work and labor and all of these, you know, narratives. And even if we're thinking about people of the African diaspora and these like different contexts, blackness became associated with things like athleticism and aggressiveness. Like if you read Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, he talks about like the black athlete as being the most eroticized, you know, trope that exists in our Western consciousness. And so it's just kind of, for me, it's like, I see how these, things are being reified within these contemporary contexts and I cannot look away. That's yeah. I think that's a, uh, that's a good way to put it. It's hard. It is indeed. It's increasingly difficult mm-hmm. to, to look away and yeah. to just like be blinded to sport because we, we, we might enjoy it or we might be kind of entertained. Um, but it actually reifies a lot of these structural issues that um, you're talking about. People have been talking about for, for a very long time. Um, and on that note, I, I had, a, I'm going to quote you here. So sorry, um, sorry, <laughs> Letitia for, for quoting your piece, but I, I, I felt the conclusion, um, really draws together a talking point that we not only on this podcast have continuously talked about, but it, I, in my teaching talking about this question of politics and sport. And I think your, your, your conclusion explicitly, um, offers a take on that. And I want to ask you about it. So I'm quoting you now. Um, and in your conclusion, you say, sport is a domain of society in which notions of race, gender, sexuality, nation, ability, and more are continuously shaped and reshaped. And through the highly visible position of sports offered by a multitude of media outlets, it can become a domain in which social dramas are played out as public spectacle. Such social dramas then offer a platform for discussion of issues that exist not only within the realm of sport, but in society at large. Sport offers a platform through which movements for social change and justice can be presented to the public. Justice in sport, however, requires attention to more than just gender, race, or ability. It requires an emphasis on the ways in which modalities form mutually constructing systems of power first of all brilliant (laughs) second of all it sounds like you're you're just providing a straight rebuttal to the whole keep politics out of sport thing right yeah like you're putting that you're you're suggesting it's impossible to disconnect 
the gendered, racialized, ableist, sexist, nationalist representations of athletes from broader systems of power. And over the past year, we, I, I think shockingly, have seen this debate about politics in sport become renewed in some ways. And I'm not sure why in 2021. How do you respond to folks out there who say politics do not belong in sport? <laughs> okay, so first, I will just reiterate the fact that I consider myself to be, you know, a Black feminist scholar. And a part of my politic is the understanding that the personal is political. So that is everything, including sport. And I think that we get so caught up sometimes in taking the humanity out of the athletes and seeing them more as vehicles that are playing games that we forget that they are humans who live and breathe in our society. And the things that are happening in our society may not touch them in the same way that it touches those of us who don't live in the public eye or that don't make billions, millions of dollars, but it touches them nonetheless. LeBron James in a dark place at night in a hoodie could just as easily be shot as a Trayvon Martin. And we cannot ignore that. And I think that athletes can't ignore that. And I think especially for those who played collegiate sports and are witnessing the ways in which their labor is just being used and abused, especially now in the era of COVID, with little to no compensation, like real compensation, that I think we just, I think that people are really starting to recognize and be less afraid to speak up and speak out. Like, activism in sports didn't start in the 21st century. It's been here. And even if we think back to like Jack Johnson, like he had to be pardoned. And a lot of the issues and actions were his relationships. So it had really nothing to do with him as an athlete so much as it did with his personal life. So to say that we can have this stark separation between sports and politics is ludicrous. And, and I know you have a piece um, <laughs> about this coming out, um, mm -hmm. a piece on the changing face of Black athlete activism. So one, I'd like to give you an opportunity to plug that piece. Um, Thank you. And, and um, I think it's, it, it would be great to, to hear about. Um, but it, there's also a question that comes with that. And, and I think that over the, the past year or so, we've seen some of the most amazing and powerful um, athletes speak out about um, this question of politics and sport. And this is spanning from long, lo decades long work in the WNBA and more recently in the NWHL and other um, uh, other sports leagues, as well as like the NBA and the NFL, and even in some small cases in the NHL as well. Over the past year, we're seeing like amazing, brilliant people doing awesome work to 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 explain um, and to help us understand that sport is inherently political and we can move towards some sort of social change. But as the expert here, what is your read on folks who have been vocal about the impossibilities inherent in separating politics and sport? And perhaps a little bit more specifically, do you find it surprising that we are still having these 
discussions in 2021 and on the heels of some of the most brilliant and powerful social movements that I've seen in um, in the U.S. in decades. Yeah, I just I think about this a lot. And with most things in society, we move in waves and in cycles. There are several really great pieces on Black athlete activism that talks about, you know, the 1960s, 1970s during the Black power movement, you know, kind of more silentness during the 90s, and then this like resurgence with the Black Lives Matter movement and what's happening with like, say her name and all of those things with the WNBA and women like Maya Moore, who just walked away from the sport in order to walk her talk and contribute to the cause of fighting for a better world, right? And so when I think about athletes, one thing that just like stays in my mind is when James Baldwin said that to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious and to be in a rage almost all the time. And I think that we often don't acknowledge the reality of that and the harsh reality of that. And for athletes, they are more visible than most. And so their rage gets, you know, perceived in different ways, like, but they can use their platform in order to talk about black rage in general. And issues like other issues, because like there is, it's not just an issue of race, right? Like we live in a world in which everything is connected. My experiences would be very different if I was a person of a different class, if I was a person of a different religion, if I was a person of a different sexual orientation, all of these things together make me who I am. And they structure my framework and my positionality. And so I always try to be really reflexive in the work that I do by stipulating that like I come to my work from this very particular perspective that is mine. And like black feminisms are not monolithic, like Mickey Kindle's hood feminism, um, Mina Salami's sensual, <laughs> like the sensuousness of feminism, like feminism is so much black feminism is so much. And there's so much space within it to kind of, dig deeply into these issues, including activism. And what I think is interesting about the U.S. and politics is that when it comes to sports, um, Victor Ray, even though he wasn't talking about athletes, he said that a common American political narrative is venerating dead Black heroes while pillaring the living. The United States has a history of lionizing Black folks it helps send to the grave. So here I'm thinking about Muhammad Ali, who was hated for so long. But then, you know, as he's older and closer to death, suddenly the mainstream wants to embrace him as this hero or Tommy Smith and John Carlos. But for me, we have these stories, but what's missing are the women. Like, because there have always been women activists, the 
Combi River Collective tells us this. Like, they have always been there. But as in society, sport too, you know, limits the voices of women and those who are not male and masculine and white. But I just think that we, especially with like the advent of social media and how much easier it is to share information, that that's kind of why things are changing the way that they are. Like one of the things that people talk about when they talk about the Rodney King incident is that what made it so horrifying and heartbreaking was that it was filmed. Like, it wasn't the first time that the police had nearly beat a Black man to death. Of course not. But it was one of the first instances in the history of the U.S. in which we saw something like that happening on television. In our homes. Social media is basically now just replacing that. Yeah. Social media is giving new opportunities for a variety of folks mm-hmm. to to be heard in ways never before. Right. And, yeah. People wouldn't be able to, like, we can reach millions of people on Twitter in ways that we were never able to do before. And what I appreciate is that it offers this platform for people to speak their truth and to share and spread ideas. But I mean, of course, with that, we have, you know, challenge and people that use it in ways that are denigrating to others. But that's society, right? So... Yeah, absolutely. And and so we have this really amazing piece um, that you publish in the Shadow League, which we are definitely going to be linking in the notes. And we just <laughs> love to he- we would love to hear you expand on it. And in that piece, you totally destroy the publication of an incredibly, I mean, just flat out racist and sexist cartoon by the Herald Sun, by the cartoonist Mark Knight. Um, and, and in this piece, um, you discuss how the cartoon depicted Serena Williams's body. And again, we're going to quote here. Um, you said, "quote out of control and it, it out of control and reproduces images of black women as aggressive and beast-like, while the image of her opponent completely erases Osaka as a woman of color by replacing her with a blonde white female figure." Such images speak simultaneously to the hypervisibility of Black athletes, as well as the erasure of Black female athletes and its portrayal of massage noir. But then you go on to conclude, um, and you are just amazing at conclusions. I'm so jealous of your <laughs> oh skills gosh. to do this, by the way. <laughs> um, but you said, quote, we are reminded by her presence that no body in the tennis world has been scrutinized, um, read the most drug-tested athlete in the game, or penalized. Um, as Serena, and we cannot ignore the fact that the response to her body is based both on her race as well as her gender, hence misogynoir at its peak. Um, Now, could you discuss some of the implications of the dissemination of such racialized and sexist representations of athletes like Serena Williams? Yeah, I mean, it just, it continues to like reify these narratives, right, of like, angry black women and aggressive black women and i'm i just i pulled up the image because it every time i see it i'm horrified because like it's supposed to be a representation of her match against osaka that happened you know back in um 2018 but what i see when i look at it is a like this image of who is supposedly serena it's not her It is a caricature of 
blackness and black womanhood that has existed for centuries. The exaggerated features and the musculature and the tutu, like it's all very, like it's all very dramatic, right? And it's this idea that black women and, you know, like there's this notion of like women in general as being out of control. I mean, female hysteria was a medical condition for far too long. So it's just like the intersection of racism and sexism, sexism and sport is super visible. And Serena Williams, because she is the GOAT, is one of the people who get scrutinized the most by the media, by opponents. And like, I I can't remember who it was that decided it would be funny to put like pillows in their butt like several years ago to kind of like mimic her body because there's always this exaggeration about the black female posterior. Like there is an obsession with the black female posterior and it's just kind of like, what is happening? But it's just, it's this, it's this reaffirmation of these controlling images. But what I appreciate about Serena and other athletes, other black sports women is the ways that they push back against these narratives and the ways that they don't let these, you know, these images control their lives and their livelihoods and their lived experiences. Like Serena's out there. She is still being the the greatest. Like she's like, when it comes to number of wins, she will not be touched for a very long time. Like there are some really great athletes coming up in tennis, Naomi Osaka included, like she's wonderful. I love her, but it's going to be a while because Serena's still going. Like she's not stopped. She's still going. And we don't know when she will stop. And when she does, she's going to have so much of a legacy that she will not soon be forgotten. And that's a sort of transformative yeah, I, I think you're juxtaposing like the the control, the surveillance of, of specific bodies on the one hand by media, by coaches, by a variety of different uh, stakeholders, if you will. And then the uh, the opposite side that you're juxtaposing that with is like the transformative power of like, all right, so we do have social media. We do have Instagram where these athletes, these these wonderful people can go and talk about these things in an open platform and try to push back and resist that system. And wrestle with these narratives and try and one, dismantle them, but also like question why we want to cling so tightly to them. Just last year or... No, it was it was before COVID, pre-COVID times. In the before times, when we were in public spaces, I attended a talk about um, the gender pay gap. And it was a panel of all women. And one of the things that I found that I really struggled with was the ways that race was ignored. Because it's easy to say that women in the United States make 82 cents on the dollar. And it's like, yeah, maybe white women. You know, it's easy to say that, well, you just have to behave in this way and you'll be able to get promoted. But if you're a black woman, 
you're already at a disadvantage, especially depending on the field that you're in, because you're either going to be seen A, as the help, or B, as an angry Black woman. Like, and God forbid if you cry. So it's just like, there's there are so many things that, like, you can't, you have, you can't disentangle this relationship that exists between racism and sexism, which is what, you know, like, the idea of misogynoir and how it's particular to Black women, because there is a particular type of sexism that impacts Black women in ways that are very unique to us. Yeah. And honestly, your work really reminds me of, um, you're probably familiar with this, uh, Letitia, this book by Sabrina Strings um, on, I can't remember the title. Um, I have it somewhere in my office. I can't find it. Is it Fearing the Black Body? It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So yeah, there's that book that I, I mean, I need to take, t- I need to look at it more thoroughly, but also uh, Robin, uh, Robin Mitchell's book, Venus Noir, which mm. both of them, both of them look at Sarah Bartman and yes. just really like the, the, t- the two perspectives on how Sarah Bartman's body were just completely like exoticized, yes. like by so many people over and over. And um, I listened to a different, a new, uh, I think it was like a new books and French studies network or something, uh, an interview with with Robin Mitchell on her book. And she she talked about how emotionally and mentally how difficult, but also kind of how cathartic in some ways it was to do her research to kind of look at the colonial implications of looking at Sarah Bartman's body and how like the museum, uh, the the archive she was at actually had the like molds that mm-hmm. were used around her body to like measure her shape and all that stuff. And she was just sort of talking about, again, sort of reflecting the way you are, but just really between the two of them talking about how centuries ago, how, how, how long this process has been. And obviously it has, you know, goes back to like European colonialism even before the 1800s, but it was just so interesting. And so when I was reading your piece for today, it just really affirmed for me how connected all these things are in terms of how black women's bodies are just so like preyed upon and exoticized and, and manipulated by the white gaze. And, and also just like made me profoundly sad. It's like, wow, like have things actually changed? But of course, like your discussion about, you know, the power of social media, how, how, how that can allow someone to like recapture their image and, and have their own voice that at least, you know, has a more of a, a less pessimistic kind of side to it. But just when you were talking about it, it really kind of made me think of these other books. Well, first, thank you for like saying my name alongside authors like Sabrina Strings and Robin Mitchell, who I follow on Twitter and who follows me back. <laughs> so I feel really cool about that. But their work is definitely foundational to kind of like the conversations that I have, because I don't, I cannot begin my conversation in my book without talking about Sarah Bartman, right? Like she is the archetype of what was translated into Black sexual deviance. And we cannot ignore the ways that her body was put on display in order to kind of like entertain, but also contribute to racial science of the time, you know, as like a body of evidence and entertainment at the same time. And it's just, it's, it's impossible for me to ignore how the narratives that really began out of her experiences continue to follow Black women across the diaspora today. I'm always very conscious of myself when I'm in a classroom or when I'm applying for jobs about how I'll be perceived. I 
do not believe in, you know, hiding and not speaking my truth. And I know that for me, people told me that I wasn't going to get hired because I wear braids or my hair is natural or I have my nose ring. And I'm like, look, I got a job at a great place. And one of the women, actually, when I was visiting the panel said that um, she said something along the lines of, I should change my hair and my attire the next time I go on an interview. And I was like, well, I actually work here. I'm an assistant professor. <laughs> and like, and I get it because wow. for a lot of people, when they first meet me, they don't recognize me as faculty, right? And so one of the things that I love about social media is kind of like Twitter in particular was this, there was this thing going around where it's like, this is what a professor looks like. This is what a scientist looks like, right? And it's all of these women of various backgrounds and figures and shapes and sizes and features that you wouldn't assume, right? Because when we think of professors, especially in the U.S., we think, you know, white men, frumpy clothes or elbow patches. Still, we still think that even though it's 2021 and academia is changing, like it is still very white and very male, but it is changing. Yeah, and I, well, I, we are we are huge critics of higher education here on the show. Mm -hmm. and, and in general, I think like we still have so so much wrong so much wrong like and so much work and, to do mm -hmm. and for a discipline like i'm gonna hate on our our discipline Letitia, <laughs> a little bit here like for a discipline who that has like social inequality and understanding and analyzing different forms of discrimination and oppression like at its foundation sociology is so harmful in this respect like sociology it, it is a really damaging place um, for a lot of young scholars for the reasons that you mentioned and sorry that you had to experience those things. Thank you. I mean, but at the same time, like, even though I have had experiences that I would not wish upon anyone, I feel very fortunate to be in the space in the department that I am because they have given me the freedom to study and teach the things that are important to me. Like, in the fall semester, I taught a course called Plantation Politics, the Black Sport Experience, a special topics course for our Africana Studies, you know, program. And just having the opportunity to, one, put that course on the books and to engage with students on the subject of, you know, politics and Black athletes was just incredible, especially considering everything that's happening contemporarily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a fire course. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking back, my, my laugh earlier probably came off wrong. I, I just can't, I I don't know. I'm, I think I'm just naive. I, the, 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 the fact that someone would have the audacity to say like, you will not be hired because of specific characteristics. Like, I, I don't know, actually saying that to your face. So, so my laugh was more of a reaction. I can't believe someone said that. Not, not that it oh, happened. No. So my I totally get that. that. And that I way. think like, you know, for her, I believe that she meant well, like, I believe that it wasn't coming from a space of negativity, but a space of like, we have to put ourselves in these boxes in order to get in. Right. And I'm just like, I can't do that. And I won't do that. Like, if you don't want me for me, then you don't want me. And like, that's too bad for you because I'm awesome. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. That that person would never feel that that need or that even 
mm-hmm. that person wouldn't even feel like it's appropriate to say something like that if that wasn't the structure that that person is existing in. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's what like continuously shocks me because I hear about these things and I hear about other um, gendered, like really violent gendered things that colleagues are hearing. And mm-hmm. I, as a white male, I'm like, none of this, none of yeah. this has been said to me. Absolutely. And and so now, Letitia, one question I've been really wanting to ask you is about your work and progress on Black gymnasts and racism and gymnastics. Um, now, we've seen the gymnastics community undergo, at least from my perspective, not that I'm, I'm not an expert on sport uh, on gymnastics, so feel free to to correct me, but it seems like the sport has just got, undergone probably more sort of t- turmoil and change over the last five years in terms of, the, you know, the allegations of sexual abuse, but also how that seemed to have opened up the door for gymnasts to extend the discussion of abuse to also include other super harmful forms of physical and mental abuse, such as weight shaming, fat phobia, and much more. And we've talked about these, about some of these dynamics in our, in our gymnastics week in summer 2020. And then we also have an upcoming episode on the subject of inclusive and exclusive gymnastics with respect to LGBTQ plus athletes. Yeah, um, it should be awesome. Um, but um, last summer, there were several um, really important, uh, there were several black gymnastics who spoke out really importantly about the racism that they've experienced at the hand of their coaches, teammates, and much more. Um, and so I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit about what you've explored so far in your research regarding this overall topic. It's, gymnastics is a fascinating sport because for a very long time, it wasn't accessible to a lot of people because of cost, because of body ideals. And so that makes it a really interesting kind of like case study. And with the ways that athletes like Simone Biles and Gabby Douglas have been performing in the past five years, you know, we can't ignore Black women gymnasts. Like, but even if we look outside of the Olympics to these collegiate athletes that are doing these floor routines that have been just amazing with these, like, women that are doing routines to people like Janet Jackson and getting her attention, like, Black Black gymnasts are here and they are not going anywhere and they are putting their public facing. And so because they're in this position to be public facing, we have these opportunities to talk about the realities of what is going on. We know that sports in general are complicated and athletes have these complicated experiences like it's amazing when you're on the field and you're with your team or doing your event and you're living your life but the work that it takes to get there can be damaging on multiple levels mentally physically and emotionally and we often don't talk so much about the mental aspects of it or the physical aspects when it comes to things like sexual assault and abuse. And I just think that with all of the women that are speaking out now, we know that there were things that were going on before because even former athletes are coming out now and saying, this is my truth as well. 
I think it helps that we're kind of in this Me Too movement, which was, by the way, started by a Black woman, and just thinking about how we are coming to reflect on the importance of letting these truths be spoken because are gold medals worth the traumas that these athletes face? Like, is that the type of legacy that we want to lead to future generations and that we want to say we won these, you know, these gold medals, but 60, 70 people have been irreparably damaged. You know, like that's not, that doesn't seem like the type of legacy that I would want, you know, to leave behind as, as a coach, as a, as a human, as a person, just as a person. And like gymnasts, you know, historically have been, you know, tiny people and the way that we sexualize children in general and black children in particular is just it's difficult to ignore and i think that those things get reified in sport right because sport is a microcosm of society and so while black girls are seen as you know hypersexual like it's unsurprising to me that black gymnasts have undergone these experiences of abuse because their bodies are reflective, like beyond the strength that they possess, they're supposed to be reminiscent of, you know, girls. And they are girls for the most part. Like, you know, Simone Biles turned 24 today, so she is a woman. But when you begin in the sport, you're a girl. And I think that for a lot of gymnasts and athletes in general, that people can't stop seeing you as you were. And that's problematic, but also it's like you might have had the power over them when they were children, but they're not children anymore. And because they are no longer children and they have more power and agency than they did, they are in a position to speak up and speak out. And I am grateful that they're doing it. I am horrified by everything that they had to undergo and experience and the fact that we are less inclined to get rid of people who abuse children or just abuse their power in general in a sexual nature than we are to let go of, you know, a person because they're a woman or a black male coach. Like black male coaches in football, for instance, like at the collegiate level and even at the NFL level, there aren't that many. And if you start losing games, you're out. Like, you don't get as many chances as white coaches. But we'll hold on to a gymnastics coach who's sexually abusing several of their athletes. There's a a complete and total disconnect there. And I just, I see it and I have to say it. And it's just Mm -hmm. disturbing. But that is our reality. And it's a problem. I, w- I was just going to say, and, and you know, one thing that, that kind of struck me about um, the the women, the black gymnasts who came forward to talk about um, the the racialized abuse mm-hmm. that they received and the racism, mm-hmm. 
how do I say it was so that I found, you know, I found the reactions just really interesting compared to the ones from white women about sexual abuse, just in the sense of like, obviously which ones were amplified and like more versus not was really interesting. Um, and then I also just like a conversation that I had that, um, Georgia Saravan had the other week with the, um, the two co-hosts of the half in half, half out podcast, which will be coming out in a week or two. We're not sure yet. Um, but what, what was interesting is when I was talking to them about this whole issue of like, what does inclusive gymnastics mean? And what is it like, we talked about it broadly, but like most of the episode was talking about it was specifically like a, a queer context was that, you know, that the sport is trying to make steps to make the sport more inclusive. But then there are people within the community, very, very powerful, very loud, sort of very powerful voices within the, within the sort of anti-abuse community who have come out and said, you know, like, why are we, why are we selling, like, why are we focusing on making the sport more inclusive for queer athletes when we're still facing all of these issues of sexual abuse and harassment? And it was just the sort of thing that I saw it on Twitter. And I'm just like, like, why are we pitting these things against each other? Like, why can't we be inclusive in every single possible way, which obviously includes inclusive for you know, queer athletes for trans athletes for black athletes, right? It's sort of it's all part of the same thing. It's all a part of the white supremacy. So why can't we hmm. be fighting these things together, rather than the white women who are some of them who are leading the sort of anti sexual abuse campaign, saying, you know, no, this is just our fight. You know, it mm-hmm. just seems it's like so counterproductive, and it you know it isn't surprising knowing the 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 history of white feminism and mm-hmm. white and white feminist racism it isn't surprising but it's just like so sad and so i'm just kind of curious about how um like what an analysis of sort of like that would look like yeah and so like it's it links to what i was saying about like the hypersexualization of young black women and thinking about campaigns like Say Her Name, right? Because the Black Lives Matter movement exists and it exists to discuss the ways that Black people in this country are victimized by the state consistently and often without recourse. But what often gets lost in the conversation are the ways that women, non-binary and trans folk are also exploited by the system and in racialized and gendered ways, right? Like, say her name is meant to amplify the voices that get silenced the most. And those voices are typically like the people that I just named. And it's a problem. We cannot ignore the ways that, you know, since slavery, Black women have been the victims of sexual predatorial behaviors because A, they weren't seen as women, B, they were talked about as being sexually lascivious in such a ways that they were unrapeable because you can't rape a woman who's always willing, right? And we have these narratives with that exist, like even in the dominant culture, and there's still so much pushback against people being able to talk about issues of sexual abuse in ways that like, well, you're going to ruin this person's career. And it's like, excuse me, this person ruined my life. I don't give a about their career, but it's more acceptable. Like I'm thinking about Brock Turner, for instance, Mm, uh, you know, if he had been a black athlete who had raped a white girl, 
the conversation would have looked very different. Just like the fact that the experiences of white athletes who are being abused are more amplified than those of black athletes and black female athletes in particular, because we are constantly marginalized and pushed into corners in the shadows, even though we are always on the front lines for everyone else. Like at the same time, people are saying, listen to listen to Black women, protect Black women. Black women are speaking and doing things and not getting paid for their services. Black women and Black girls are getting thrown into prison at rates that are amplifying more and more. They're being victimized more and more. But we're not, say, we're not, we're not having those conversations simultaneously, and that's a problem. Because you cannot protect Black women or trust Black women or listen to Black women if you're not actually doing those things. Like it's more than a hashtag; it's our lives. Yeah, and it, it's all—it's always interesting and and horrifying to see on not even just social media, but just media in general, right? On what gets picked up mm -hmm. and who gets amplified, and then how we are ignorant to the system. Like we, as a a, a, a citizenry or a population, are just ignorant mm -hmm. to media's complicity in that oh yeah like it's we just so accept complicit. when espn doesn't cover these things right, right. when they like, ignore yeah. women's sports or when they yeah. ignore the work of the wnba and getting political people into office yeah. like right right or that they need another piece to say like no the wnba like did this way before colin kaepernick mm -hmm. like like you need another someone else to do it right and point it out and like that is so fascinating as a media scholar like it's just so fascinating and it's just it like, I think that the media and even things like film really kind of highlight the ways that our ideas and understandings about race, gender, class, sexuality are so deeply ingrained within us. And often we don't interrogate ourselves and our biases that they just like, when they bubble to the surface, people are surprised. But it's like, it wouldn't have rolled out of your tongue so easily if you were not repeating these narratives to yourself on a daily basis. I'm thinking back, for instance, to the first Hunger Games, in which there was all of this backlash against the character Rue being played by a Black girl. And how people were saying things like, oh, I just wasn't as sad because Rue was Black. I'm sorry, a child's death should be horrifying on every level regardless i didn't know this was a discourse oh it was yeah. it was the discourse yeah. and it was disgusting and racist and that's why we have misogynoir because there is this specific like targeted racist sexism that just exists for black women and it's horrific and it's dangerous it's it is insane how much things have changed on the one hand and how little they have changed on the other like the december 2020 bombing in nashville the coverage of that outside of the state would have been so different if the perpetrator had been a black or brown person. There would be 
larger outcries if the people being shot in the street were white. There would be, people would have worn masks maybe longer or earlier and with actual care if the people that were dying the most didn't look like me. But we don't want to have those conversations. But at the same time, we're so quick to say that we are a post-racial society. Heck, we had a Black president. Heck, we have a Black South Asian vice president right now. We've done it. We won. And I'm like, really? Have we? Because, you know, like, (laughs) a single Black face in an elevated space is not change. And I just think that for me, being able to have these conversations and to do this research is so important because I actually love sports and I would love for them to be a space that one is a vehicle for transformation and social justice because there is so much potential because of the power that their platforms have. But we have to dismantle these structures that are built on exploitation and this exploitation of particular bodies. Yeah. Speaking of, of, and you mentioned earlier, sort of bubbling to the surface. Mm-hmm. I, w- the moment you said that, I thought to myself, that's a perfect segue to ask you a little bit about college athletics. Yeah. Now we've, we've written a number of pieces on the end of sport about how, the rush to return to play in college football and college basketball is incredibly reflective of -hmm. what Cedric Robinson calls racial capitalism Mm -hmm. or the sort of systematic theft of wealth from black communities by white folks and what Billy Hawkins labels the new plantation. Mm -hmm. And nothing makes this more clear than a recent incident that sort of bubbled to the surface, if you will, when Creighton head coach Greg McDermott literally used the plantation mentality in a post-game speech to players. Right. Or we can mention last week's um, breaking news that um, sort of, uh, it actually, I think this is your alma mater, UT. Yeah. Um, uh, where rich <laughs> boosters did what sort of rich white boosters do when um, sort of football team didn't stay on the field to sing the eyes of Texas. They pummeled the athletic department with emails, with anti-black emails, racist emails, um, pulling funding, saying that, um, that the the tail cannot wag the dog, things like that, just like obviously horrid, horrible things. And I, I I'm just thinking, in in the context of this conversation, I'd love to get your read on all of this. Yeah, I mean, calling my special topics course "Plantation Politics: mm-hmm. The Black Sport Experience" was intentional, right? Mm-hmm. Because. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. I mean, for me, it's impossible to not see the parallels that exist between sports and plantations, especially when it comes to the treatment of Black athletes. I was really fortunate in my course to work with a brilliant emerging scholar, former NFL player, um, Deshaun Fox, as my teaching assistant. And the conversations that we had about his experiences you know, in the NFL draft, for instance, really, I think, solidified for my students the reality of, like, what goes on behind closed doors. Like, behind closed doors, we still have this, like, especially in, you know, 
Southern conservative spaces because, so for me, I lived in Texas. I was at UT for my master's and my dissertation, and I would not call Texas the South. I wouldn't. It's its own kind of special crazy. But now that I'm here in Virginia, I can't ignore the parallels, right? Like this is the South. I'm in the South now. And let me tell you, the South is the, the South is still really the South. And, but I mean, like not to, you know, portray these narratives that the North is all progressive because there were race, there's racism all over, like it's everywhere. But like, when I think about college athletes, football in particular, I come at it from a lot of different angles. I grew up watching football with my dad and my uncles. Like they lived for football. They loved football. I was, when I was watching the NFL, a Denver Broncos fan because I'm from Colorado, from Denver, and it was my grandma's favorite team. And so that's what it was. Right. So you like, you do what your grandma loves, period. Um, When I went to college at the University of Pittsburgh, I was a tour guide and I was able to kind of like see aspects of the college football recruiting experience that I might not have otherwise known about. And then I went to grad school at a huge football university, right? Because UT is football and Texas football is life. And so I've seen like these different lens, these different ways of looking at college football. And I can't ignore the reification of plantation politics within this practice. Like people think, oh, well, athlete, black athletes, black football players and everything, they should be grateful for all that they've been given. They should be grateful because they wouldn't have gone to college otherwise, because, you know, we're not, we're not smart people. We're athletes. Um, th- that's the narrative. Like it's still the narrative. When I was in undergrad in a class, a white male professor asked students to raise their hand if they were here on scholarship. He asked every single black student what sport they played. When it was my turn, I was like, I'm here on an academic scholarship, sir. Like I was a little bit of an athlete in high school, but I was never going to be a college athlete. (laughs) Like that was just not, it was not in the cards for me, but these are the narratives that still exist. And when it comes to football, which is big business for many colleges, people think, especially those that are, you know, rich donors, for instance, think that their, their reality is the reality. So they're, you know, donating for these athletes to perform for them. So they should be grateful to them because they're pretty much their property. How that narrative is different from slaves on the plantation, I don't really see it. The ways that we talk about Black male athletes on the field in terms of why there aren't very many Black, you know, quarterbacks because they they lack the intelligence to, you know, lead a team essentially is often the narrative and people like say it in these I mean and I like part of me wants to say unconscious bias but it's not unconscious like you he knew what he was saying yeah yeah like he like you don't just say we should all stay on the plantation like that does that doesn't just come out of nowhere like something led to that there were sparks within this person that led him to say what he said 
And then the media covering, right? Like the media calling it racial undertones or racial right. insensitivity. Like that all plays into this. Right. Like that was racially charged. No, it was just racist. Like it's just racism, period. Full stop. Racism. And I am, you know, like, I think that our athletes deserve better especially our collegiate athletes. The fact that there was so much pressure for them to play in a pandemic in which the people, in which they are the demographic that is dying the most of the regular population is ridiculous. And it goes to show you how expendable people believe Black bodies are even today in 2021. There are so many amazing people talking about these things. Right. But yet the narrative, it still isn't mm -hmm. like, the narrative is still like, oh, everyone wants to play. Like, this is great for for right. athletic workers like they all are just they're they, so happy to be fine. here yeah it's great it's just it's just bullshit it, it, well at least uh, uh, do i believe athletes want to play yes yes I've, we've spoken with athletes they want to play absolutely 100 mm -hmm. but they want some say in their working conditions and they should have and, some say absolutely mm -hmm. absolutely they and, sacrifice and it, their their bodies for this sport right and the majority of them are not going to go pro and, and they the harm's can, been done. Right. And it's already been done. And it can't be taken back and undone. And so then what are they left with? Like, what do universities do for athletes when they can, when they're no longer useful? You know, I think it was, no, I don't think it was Harry Edwards who said that like a piece of equipment, the black athlete is used. And with equipment, you know, there's always another piece that you can buy. This is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, we, I think we could talk about that all day. Mm -hmm. um, and this, this episode would be six hours long. But <laughs> I do have a question because you did mention that you're in, in the South. Yeah. Um, you're in Virginia. And you're teaching this class. It sounds wonderful. But you are in in the south and like there are those like southern um uh characteristics right we'll, we'll call it how has your class been received um and and i, I i'm not asking you to out students or anything no. i'm just curious how your class overall has been received by colleagues just mm -hmm. by by people in the class by just how has it been received my colleagues have been incredibly supportive of my teaching this course. It was a special topics course, so I only taught it the one time. And I had 21 students and they did a group podcasts and it was a mixture, you know, some athletes, some not, just some grad students, some seniors, juniors. Like it was a really interesting amalgamation of people. And the feedback that I got like several students said that this course should be standard and on the books, which I really appreciated. That was really kind of them to say. And, you know, like, because I'm teaching this from a Black feminist lens, like, I know that there are always going to be people that I'm going to butt heads with. But what I appreciate is that in one of the comments a student who I don't know because they're anonymous said something along the lines of, while I didn't agree with everything that was said politically, Dr. Brown is the only teacher this semester who actually treated us like humans living in a pandemic. You know? And like, for me, that's all that I want. I know that I'm not going to change everybody's mind, but at least I got you thinking about it. 
because you had to do the readings. You had to come to the discussions and contribute to the discussion. So like it or not, even if you don't believe it, at the back of your mind, you're never going to forget that plantation politics was the name of the course that you took. And when we have people that are actually using that metaphor now, like people are going to remember again, like it's going to spark something every time this student hears it. Yeah. And that's a good point. Yeah. Like, like the title in and of itself is a contribution. And that's what, that's what my goal was, was like, I, I wanted to do something that first of all, like we are a sports, we're a sports university, right? Like, we're, Virgi we're Virginia Tech. We do sports. And so I was like, yeah, and I love sport. And I also see that, like, this is a predominantly white institution. And if I don't have these conversations, who will? Like, and that's why I'm here. I'm here to have these conversations and to talk about the difficult things. Like, I teach social inequality and race and ethnicity. Like, I do what I do for the, for a reason. And I know that often like women faculty in general get dinged on scores and evaluations, student evaluations for loads of reasons, which are talked about often. And black women in particular are supremely harmed by student evaluations at times. At the same time, there are always at least one or two students that are like, I'm so grateful for you for like walking your talk, you know? And it's like, if that one black student needs to see me in the front of the classroom in order to believe that anything that they put their mind to, they can do, then I will be there. And it's not even just my black students. Like I am here doing this work because one, I love it. And Two, like, I want to be a part of the changes that are going to happen eventually because systems break down. And when they do, things need to be put in place. And if I can be a part of something, then I, then I will do it. Yeah. And just sort of on a personal note, Virginia, so I grew up outside Richmond. That was like oh. where I spent my, my whole life before I went to college. I never, I never moved back for a lot of reasons, but Virginia is like such an interesting place as I'm sure you're realizing because mm -hmm. it's like very entrenched in this like colonial imperial history, right? right. As the first, as the first colony yeah. of the US. And it, I mean, I remember sitting in like elementary school on like looking at a map and it was just like the Virginia colony is like the first one all over the US and like just how like rah-rah that was. Yeah. And then you're also you're also in in rural Western Virginia, right? Which is also really interesting. I would think right now with the the politics of Virginia leaning at least in the governmental sorry, in the governmental way, leaning more, leaning at least somewhat more left than it has in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I just, it, it, I think Virginia Tech and like, I have lots of friends that went to school there and that was a school that I thought about going to undergrad, but it's, it's just such an interesting kind of place for that kind of class to be taught. And then there's also a really strong military yes. culture there as well. Right. Cause we have the second largest, uh, core of cadets on a non-military campus, which is something I didn't know until I came here. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know a lot about Virginia Tech. I knew what most people knew about Virginia Tech, basically. And then I got here and I discovered, you know, 
the reason I applied for the job that I did is because the year that I was on the market, they were advertising a postdoc in their sociology department. And what I love about our department is that we are connected to Africana studies, women and gender studies, Native American Indian studies, peace studies, you know? And together, it's such an interdisciplinary space that we are able to do so many creative things like teaching this course, Plantation Politics. I'm not sure if I would have the ability to teach this in a different type of institution, but, you know, I do. And so I will, like, as long as I can, like, I'm like, as long as you let me, I'll do it because I love it. And one of the things that I like talked about was kind of like my pedagogies and my methods. And so I really like to use literature in my classes, like in my social inequality class so far, we've read Nick Stone's um, Dear Martin, which is about the criminal justice system and like racial profiling and class. And just, I just think that it helps to make sociological concepts more real. And because people often have this idea in their in the back of their minds unconsciously or consciously that sociology is just common sense, I'm like, if it was common sense, we wouldn't need to have these classes and we wouldn't be living in a system in which so many people are in poverty and people are dying in childbirth because they're Black. Like, <laughs> if it was common sense, the world would look a lot different. Trust me. And so I just like, I think that it's important to be in a space to have those difficult conversations because if I don't, then maybe students won't hear it here. Like I know that I'm not the only person doing this work and I'm so grateful to be among scholars here and at other institutions that are doing such good work in and outside of the study of sport. Yeah. And so just sort of continuing on this sort of reflective path that we've been going down the last few questions, um, we really want to pick back up on something that you mentioned earlier, which is that you say you you said that you love sports and that you grew up being a fan. And so we would love to hear you talk a little bit more um, or sort of expand on how um, you handle the tensions between being a fan, but then also being a critical scholar of sports. So I'm just going to be honest and say that I haven't watched a NFL season since 2016. And for me, it wasn't just about Colin Kaepernick. Like that was a huge part of it. But I had been having a lot of internal struggle with the NFL as an institution for a long time. Just thinking, for instance, about the ways that they handle issues of sexual assault within among their players is problematic the lack of diversity among coaching and other upper echelons of the you know dominoes is disturbing the ways and the racialized conversations that sports journalists and announcers not all because there are some really great sports journalists out there shout out Dave Zirin shout out Jessica Luther um who think about things in critical ways but like If we're still in 2021 talking about how there are not many Black quarterbacks because we lack intelligence, like, there's clearly still a problem. If in 2021, a college coach tells his students to stay on the plantation, we have a problem. And so as much as I love sports, I 
you know, I don't think, I think that like that makes me more critical of them, right? Because if I didn't love them, I wouldn't care so much. Like it wouldn't bother me, but I am bothered because I love these sports. I love gymnastics. I love tennis. Like I don't know much about swimming, but I think it's super cool. Um, Like track and field has always been like the highlight of the summer Olympics for me. And I'm learning more about winter sports now. And it's just like, I think, I think that's what it is for me. It's like, because I love them, I have to critique them and I have to call them out on their BS because that's what you do for the things that you love. If you want them to be better. And I do. And I believe that sports is a platform and a vehicle for change. Like I said it in 2015 when I wrote that paper and I'll say it again, like it can be a space for transformation. It can be a space for allowing us to kind of like dismantle these binaries that we try to cling so tightly to. I constantly try to find the, the words to, to communicate that I love sports very, very much and Mm -hmm. I want them to be better. Right. And that, that I think framing it in terms of that's exactly what drives the critique of sport Mm -hmm. is, is perfect for, for like responses to people who just say like, Oh, you're just a hater. And it's like, look, I love sports just as much as I love Star (laughs) Trek and I don't care. So And like, I talk about Star Trek too. Like, you know, there are problems everywhere. And I just, you know, we have to, we have to critique the things that we love or we're doing a disservice to ourselves and to those, you know, areas of our lives. Well, Letitia, thank you so much (laughs) for giving us an hour and a half of your time. We are incredibly grateful. Um, Before we close, is there anything in particular that you want to shout out? Uh, Your Twitter handle or your new book or the (laughs) the, the book that you're working on? Really anything. Here's your your chance to to give it a shout out. Well, thank you. Um, Definitely, if you're interested in my critique and just kind of like my journey on the tenure track as a junior Black woman scholar, follow me at Letitia, L-E-T-I-S-H-A, one two two that's me oh thank you must follow um Mm -hmm. the book is still in early development but i'm really kind of proud of the form that it's taking and i am really excited that it's happening right now amongst all of this discourse on sports and this growing conversation around black feminism within academia and i'm just super excited to kind of contribute to these broader conversations about the critical relationship between race, sport, and society.
as are we, we are very much looking forward to your future work um, and to, to everything that you're doing and absolutely follow um, Letitia on Twitter, uh, an amazing, I think we met on, <laughs> on Twitter and it's great to, to finally meet you mm -hmm. in kind of, <laughs> sort of real life. Right. Uh, but Dr. Letitia Brown, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you.